We're in the third message this morning of a four, a four message study on following Christ's lead. The first message was on serving others as you have been served by Christ. The second was forgiving others as you have been forgiven by God and Christ. This message focuses on loving others as Jesus Christ has loved you. We're going to look at a, at quite a number of passages today, so I'm going to use the overhead again. Uh, any one of these passages would make a great study all by itself. And, and there's no way to, to do justice to all of them in this, in this message. And there's certainly no way to do justice to the theme of the love of God in one message. But there's a method to my madness in doing it this way. I'm hoping that this morning we will make some critical connections and that by doing so, our lives will be changed. Now for some who are in this group, who are already living and leading with love, that change will be incremental. But there are likely some here in this group today for whom the change to which these passages call us involves a revolutionary transformation of life and lifestyle. But it's a transformation that will bring to you greater peace, purpose, power, and joy than you've ever known if you have been living in ignorance of this calling. And above all, it's a transformation that will make you an eternally valuable instrument in the hands of God to transform the lives of other people. And there's nothing better in your sojourn on this earth than to know God and to be used by Him to change the lives of others. The three passages that Dan just read clearly call us to love one another as we have been loved by our Savior and our Master, Jesus Christ. Now how important is that call compared with all other aspects of of obedience to which God calls us? I'd like for you to turn to 1 Corinthians 13. I'll put put it up here as well. And then follow along as I read it. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, but I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but do not have love. I am nothing. I'm having trouble hearing myself because of all the noise. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I deliver my body up to be burned, but I do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous. It does not brag and is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. 
For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak as a child and think as a child, reason as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, just as I have been fully known. But now abide faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Now, I, uh, some of you, Joe, Joe and Marilee, know where that uh, pot and spoon thing came from. Alex Strauch used that in teaching on this same passage years ago at a, a iron, Sharpens Iron deal in Emmaus. And I, I used it because I think it makes a point. I used it because when he did it, it really got my attention. This powerful passage is about the single most important assignment that we have from God. To love others as we have been loved by Him through Christ. At the same time, the passage is about how prone we are to make other things a higher priority than love. Things that never even come close to being as important as love. And by doing so, we cancel out our effectiveness as instruments of God. What is more important than having all knowledge about the things of God? Love is. Can you imagine anything more important in the Christian life than having all faith? Isn't faith what this is about? No, love is more important. What's more important than giving all your stuff, to, uh, selling all your stuff and taking that money and feeding the poor and giving up your body to be burned, being so diligent and earnest about wanting to be sacrificial that you just give your life up? Love is. In fact, love is so much more important than all of those things that even if you know all mysteries, have all the knowledge in the world, have all the faith that's possible to have, but you don't have love, God says you are nothing. Nullified. Canceled out. There is nothing in this list that is not good. But there is one thing without which all the others become utterly useless. Personally, I'm very fond of knowledge, especially knowledge about the Bible. But God tells me forcefully that if I knew every single thing He has revealed in Scripture better than anyone else on this earth, but did not have love, I would be useless to Him. That gets my attention. There is simply nothing God's character and your redemption requires of you that is more important than loving others as you have been loved by Jesus Christ. Now I want to examine God's definition of love so that we know we're understanding it the way He does. Our key purpose this morning is to walk away with a clearer and purer understanding of what true love is and how we come to receive and give that love so that we may be better conduits, conduits of, of the love of God in all our relationships. And by true love, I most definitely don't mean what people usually mean by that phrase. I mean love as God defines love. In order to accomplish the goal I just stated, we need to start by first understanding the origin, the source of all true love. 
If you were with us in the study of the Trinity, one of the things that we saw in that study that really blew me away was this reality that we're about to talk about. On the night before He went to the cross in our place, in the hours just before His betrayal and arrest, Jesus prayed what I consider to be the most amazing prayer ever uttered. A prayer that many call the high priestly prayer of Jesus. In that incomparable prayer, Jesus speaks of the very origin of love and of how love becomes part of our reality as redeemed men and women. And look at what he says. I do not pray for these alone, speaking of his disciples who were in the upper room with him, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Ultimately, that's us who are believers here. That they may, they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be one in us that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may be made perfect in one. Isn't that an amazing phrase? Perfect in one. The New American Standard renders it perfected in unity. And that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. His prayer goes on, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me. And get this, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. And these have known that you sent me, and I have declared to them your name and will declare it, that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Our Lord's impassioned words in in this prayer lay out for us, among other things, the origin and the progression of love according to the eternal plan of God. The one true God who incomprehensibly to man exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, has from eternity past enjoyed absolute perfection of love, unity, and communion within the Godhead. He wasn't lonely. He wasn't bored. He in Himself always knew and experienced genuine love more profoundly, more powerfully, and more pervasively than you and I can even imagine. And yet He saw fit to create a people for His own possession and to draw us into that perfection of love and unity and communion that He has always known. And in order to draw us into that incomparable relationship, He sent His Son to die in our place, to bear the eternal penalty for our sin and to clothe us in His own righteousness. You see, the holiness and righteousness of Christ is the one and only thing that qualifies us to enter into and to experience the eternal love of God. 
And because of Jesus Christ, nothing can separate us from his love. Ever. The point is, love is intrinsic to the very character of God and to the experience of God and always has been. Love originates with God and therefore is defined by Him. To speak of love without recognizing its origin in God is to speak of an imitation of love, not of the real thing. And that's what this world spends most of its time talking about when it uses the word love. God's own character is the starting point for understanding the nature of real, genuine love. If you go all the way back to the Pentateuch and you look at Leviticus chapter 19, it begins with God saying to Moses, speak to the sons of Israel and say this. And then he says, you shall be holy for I, Yahweh, your God, am holy. The whole foundation of holiness imparted to men is that it comes from God. He is the source of everything that qualifies as holiness. He says, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, in verse 18, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says, I am Yahweh. Later on, verses 33 to 34, when a stranger resides with you, he talked about your neighbor, now he talks about strangers. When a stranger resides with you in your land, you shall do him no wrong. The stranger who resides with you shall be to you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were aliens in the land of Egypt. And then look what he says again. I am Yahweh, your God. This chapter of Leviticus begins in verse 2 with the overarching call of God to his covenant people to be holy because he is holy. The call to be holy is a call to represent God accurately, to be his agents in manifesting his character to other men. But then God goes on in the passage and he gets more specific about how we manifest his character. He zeroes in on the issue of love, which as we've seen is the most critical, most foundational way that we as his children show forth his character in our relationships with other men. It all starts with Him. Look at what God says again to punctuate each of these commandments regarding love. I am Yahweh, your God. That's the same idea as in verse 2. Be holy for I am holy. That that phrase, by the way, I am Yahweh, uh, is the justification, it's, it's the reason for commandment after commandment after commandment in the Pentateuch. It is because of who God says to us, it is because of who I am that you are called to love your neighbor and even the stranger who resides in your midst as you love yourself. Now John in the New Testament makes the same foundational connection in his epistles. In 1 John chapter 4, often called the love chapter, John says, Beloved, let us love one another For love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. 
As Gordon was saying to me this morning, love is the acid test of Christianity. It is the demonstration of who you are. You do what it is your nature to do. And if you are a child of God, you love. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. You see the, the, the power of what's being said here. Our love for others originates in God's love for us. And His love for us originates in the eternal love that was always intrinsic to who He is. Now that may seem like, a, like some esoteric thing, but this is foundational. This is absolutely critical for us to understand. Love proceeds from the very character of God. And so we don't get to define it. We don't get to determine the terms on which love is manifest or, or demonstrated. He does. And He alone. Otherwise, anything else that we substitute for His love is not love at all. We know the nature of God's love because of Jesus Christ. John 1.18 says, No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God He has made Him known. The One who is in the bosom of the Father. He's the One who has shown us the love of God and He is the One who has made us the objects of God's love. John chapter 15 and verse 9, Jesus says, By this is My Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be My disciples. Just as the Father has loved Me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. You see the progression? starts with the Father. The Father loves the Son eternally, and the Son loves us. And it's all the same love. It kind of blows my mind to think that... uh, Jesus says, as the Father loved me, so also He loved you. This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. You see all the just as clauses here. Greater love has no man than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. I love that passage because it shows the whole progression of God's love. from the Father all the way to us and through us to others. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 that Dan read, this is a very straightforward commandment. It's a tough one. Be imitators of God. I've had other brothers in Christ and sisters in Christ say to me, I'm not God. I can't be like God. Guess what? God says right there, Be imitators of Him as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave Himself up for us. 
an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Be imitators of God. That is your purpose, my purpose for living, for existence. It's the only reason we're still here on this earth. And the most fundamental way in which we manifest God to others is by loving others just as God in Christ has loved us. Okay, you've heard that enough times, but I'm going to say it some more. This is interesting. In John 15, Jesus says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. And then he says, This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. If you go in the New Testament and you look in the Gospels for every instance in which Jesus says, This is my commandment, or says, This commandment I give to you, every single time the commandment is about love. Every single time. There's a reason for that. Love fulfills the entire law of God because the purpose of the law has always been to show us the standard of God's own character and where we stand up in the face of that standard. And it is love that manifests His character perfectly. Matthew 22. You all are familiar with this. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had put the Sadducees to silence, they gathered themselves together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Testing him. (laughs) Not a good idea to test Jesus Christ. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Thought he was going to trip him up somehow. Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. That comes right out of Deuteronomy 6, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh your God, Yahweh is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. This is the great and foremost commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's Leviticus 19. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Now many of you know this, but if you... um, Read one more here. Romans 13, 8 through 10. Then I'm going to go back to the Ten Commandments for a second. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. There it is again. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not commit murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Now this is a very powerful idea. This is what it means to be ruled and led by the Spirit instead of the letter of the law. It's all about love. If you break out the Ten Commandments into two pieces, the first four commandments are about loving God. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not take the name of Yahweh your God in vain, and you shall remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. That's all about loving God. And the latter six commandments are all about loving your neighbor as yourself. Honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not take commit. You shall not commit adultery. Excuse me for the mistype. You shall not steal. You shall not, not bear false witness, and you shall not covet. 
what Jesus said and what Paul said and what the apostles said is if you love as you have been loved, all that stuff is already taken care of. You don't need a list if you're loving. That is so fundamental to the Christian life. We want rules to keep. That's the old nature. We want rules to keep. And God said, it's about love. And what is, I should say also, if you see Christian life as a burden, as a painful duty that's hard to live up to, then you have missed the love of God. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But Let's talk about what God's love is like. Familiar passages, John 3.16, For God so, and the word so means in this way, God loved the world in this way, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but should have everlasting life. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates His own love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Every time the New Testament talks about how God demonstrates or manifests His love, it's talking about the cross. You want to know what real love looks like and acts like? Look no further than the cross of Jesus Christ. His sacrifice to pay in your place the eternal debt that you owed. Let's take a little look at that. At what He did at the cross. First, what were you like when Jesus died for you? Well, the Bible doesn't mince any words about that. One of the passages that Dan read this morning starts with Romans 5, 6. While we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So in one verse, you're helpless and you're ungodly. Great start. Then, verse 8. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. So now we're helpless, ungodly, and sinners. Verse 10, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. So we're helpless, we're ungodly, we're sinners, and if that's not enough, we are enemies of God. Ephesians chapter 2 says, goes even further, says, you were dead. You're not just an enemy, you're a dead enemy. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them too, we all, all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath. That means children who deserved the wrath of God, even as the rest. So here's the list. All of us, we were helpless, we were ungodly, sinners, enemies of God, dead in our sins, deserving only the wrath of God. You think, does that paint a pretty clear picture? In Romans chapter 3, Paul goes back to the Old Testament and he makes the point, there is none righteous, not even one. There is no one who even so much as seeks after God the way he must be sought. Not even one. Dead people don't have anything to offer. And Romans 6.23 tells us what we deserve because of that state of affairs. 
Wages is what you earn. And it says the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that death is not just physical death. That death is eternal spiritual separation from God. So what that tells us, what that series of indictments tells us, is that if we are to be loved by God, God's love must be unilateral. By the way, I like the word unilateral more than unconditional, and I'll say why in a minute. And it must be self-giving, because God's not the one getting something in return here. We have nothing to offer to Him. It's unilateral, meaning that it is decreed by God even as He knows full well that we have no merit and nothing to offer to Him in return. Now, as we're saying this, I want you all to be thinking, the point is, how are we to love in light of the love of God? And we also, uh, I'll say again, we we often speak of God's love as unconditional, and rightly so. I'm not saying that's an incorrect way to put it. But let's be sure we understand that while God's love is unconditional, it is not undemanding. We've already seen that, that His love poured out upon us in Jesus Christ binds us, it constrains us to pour out the same love toward others. But as Gordon and I were talking about this morning, it is not a burdensome constraint. It's like coming upon the, a well in the middle of the desert. You're terribly thirsty. You thought you might die before you found water. And you come to this well and then you find that this well is underground. It must be tapped into a spring because it's overflowing. So you pick up a bucket and you fill it with water and you drink until you can't drink anymore. And you pour some over your head and you feel wonderful. And you realize that your life was just saved. Then you turn and in the distance you see another man who is struggling to get where you're standing and he's dying of thirst and he is so weakened by that thirst that he can't get to where you are. What must you do? Well, it's pretty straightforward, isn't it? You take that bucket and you go give that man some water and then you get him over to where you're standing so he can drink as much as he wants to. And you lose nothing in the process because that well is a well that never runs out. Is it a burden or a blessing to you to extend to others that which you have been given in Jesus Christ? A gift which is life itself. The love of God given to us is a demanding love. It constrains us with a blessed constraint. And we must share it with others. There is no reasonable response other than that for the beloved of God. And beloved, I say to you here who are children of God, that the love that is both our birthright and our calling as believers has a goal. And I want you to stay with me on this. It's exceedingly important, and this is often missed in Christian discussions about love. God's love is purposeful. Think about where we started with this discussion. Love originates in the very nature and intrinsic character of of our triune God. Triune means three in one. Three persons, one essence. 
God in three persons has always known a perfection of love in the relationship between those three persons. But the love that is God's own nature is by nature self-giving. And so God decreed from the foundations of the earth to create a people for his own possession and to draw us in as his people to that glorious love, unity, and communion that has always been his. But get this, his love requires, it demands perfection of character. It demands holiness. In order for God to draw us into his love, he has to undo the curse of our sin. He has to make us holy and righteous, fit for His presence, fit to commune with Him. So the extension of His love to us is very, very purposeful. We have to understand that the goal of God's love is not merely to make people nice. It is not even to make people self-sacrificial toward one another. This is a, a common misconception. In fact, Paul blows that misconception out of the water in 1 Corinthians 13.3, which we read a minute ago, in this verse, he says, If I give all my possessions to feed the poor and deliver my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Now wait a minute. You're saying it's impossible, that you're saying that it's actually possible for me to give so sacrificially that I die in the process without being loving? I thought that's what love was. No, God says that's not what love is. This is love. And look at the pattern in these two verses. Look at the that clause and look at what comes just before the that clause. Husbands, love your wives, Ephesians 5, 25 to 27. Love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her that, in order that, he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. And in Titus 2, verse 13, Paul says, Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who, and it's the same thing, gave himself up for us. That in order that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. That is a purposeful love. This is sacrifice with an agenda. It's self-denial with a focused point, a focused purpose. Both of these verses say that Jesus Christ gave himself up for us to accomplish something, not to be nice. The love that comes to us from God, the same love that by his doing flows through us to others, is divinely and powerfully purposeful. It's not intended to make us feel warm fuzzies, although God's love certainly does give us pervasive peace and rest. It is designed and purposed to change us, to conform us to the image of Christ, to make us holy and spotless and blameless, in order that we may be vessels of honor useful to God to do that very same thing to other people. <coughs> Excuse me. 
that we may be vessels of God, instruments to transform other people into the image of Jesus Christ. I hope you see the importance of this. I hope you see why this doesn't, how this deviates from what some other people identify as love. We're supposed to be about changing the lives of other people. And we're not the ones doing it. God is. With apologies to Huey Lewis, that is the power of love. By the way, I'm a big Huey Lewis fan. All the kids here saying, who's Huey Lewis? Look it up. Google it. You'll see. Everything you do either moves people closer toward Christ or it moves them further away from Him. Love always purposes to move its object in one direction. Love always nudges its object Godward. It always reflects the character of God. It always seeks to move the one who is loved toward God. Those who are the chosen of God, as they are drawn by Him, by this amazing love, will have their hearts laid bare by His love and they will be changed forever. And you can be the instrument by which God makes that change. Those who are not the chosen of God, as they are pressed closer and closer to Him by love, will find it unbearable to stand so close, and they will flee. Now let's consider how this clarifies things. If you have the option to go build houses for the poor, but the organization you'd be doing it with isn't keen on letting you share the gospel with those for whom you're building the house or even with your coworkers. Is that activity loving just because it's sacrificial? What does God say? No. It's not. That's not love as God measures love. We are not on this earth to do social good. We are on this earth to be instruments of God to conform people to the image of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 13 makes it clear it's very possible to be sacrificial without being loving. You may say, but wait a minute. That sacrifice, going and building houses for poor people, that reflects the character of God because it's kind and merciful and unselfish. Isn't love supposed to reflect the benevolent character of God? Yeah. But it doesn't stop there. It's not purposeful according to God's purpose. It doesn't inherently do anything to move other people toward Christ. Young ladies... If a guy tells you he loves you and he says to you, if you love me, you'll let me. How does what we've been looking at this morning help you to know if what he's saying is legitimate? My daughter has a ring that says, true love waits. You better believe it waits. Marriage and sexual intimacy are purposefully designed by God as a picture of the relationship between Christ and His church. A relationship in which everything that Christ did was deliberately intended to impart the character of God to His bride, and that's us. If a young man is asking you to cast aside the sanctity of marriage and obedience to God because he says that's how you'll prove your love for him, he is lying to you, and that is a lie straight from the pit. Real love always nudges the other person Christward. 
How you respond in that situation determines whether you genuinely love that guy with the godly love. He's not loving you if he's pulling you away from purity and obedience to Christ, and you're not loving him if you're facilitating him to do that. If you want to know that your actions are loving as God measures love, then you have to think about the purpose of those actions. Young men, do your actions toward young women show them that you are devoted to helping them stand blameless before God? Because that's what love is. Anything else is a, is a lie. Do your actions show them that you're committed to nudging them closer and closer to Christ? Or do they show them that you believe they're here for your amusement and self-indulgence? You are charged by God with the purity of your sisters in Christ. You're charged to love them as you have been loved by Christ, with a self-denying, sacrificial love that is dedicated to building them up in their relationship with God and never, never, never to tearing them down. Husbands and wives, I'll give you a quick story. I have a friend who many years ago had to figure out how God's love was to be worked out toward his wife when she was emotionally undone. She was verbally vicious to him and to their children and at times physically threatening. And she was a believer. He prayed hard. He sought the counsel of friends. And then he determined to tell his wife that for her sake and for the children's well-being, he was going to go to another state for a time and he was taking the children with him. Now, whatever you believe about the issue of separation in such a case, the next part is where the rubber meets the road. He told his wife then and he told her consistently thereafter that he would never, never, never forsake her. He would never seek divorce. His unwavering commitment to her was to do everything that he could possibly do to help her to know the love of Christ so she would truly walk with him. And he said to her he would never give up until she was restored to fellowship with God and with him. He called her and he wrote to her constantly. Above all, he prayed for her. He visited her often and at considerable expense. She finally sought counsel from someone whose counsel was based on the authority of God's Word. Over time, God softened her heart. She repented. They were reconciled and their family was restored. They've been together for decades since then. My point in sharing that story is that while the course of action isn't always easy or even clear, the course of the heart is clear. And it's the heart that matters. God is the only one who controls the outcome of what we do. You cannot change another person's heart. You can only be God's instrument in changing another person's heart. The change is not our problem. It's God's problem. When God puts someone in your life who is really hard to love, and when it's not clear what you can or should do to truly help that person, I believe your charge from God is to do the things you do, make the choices you make, and say the words you say with the intention to love that person just as you have been loved by Jesus Christ 
and to move him or her toward Christ regardless of what it costs you. You can't make them move closer to Christ, but you can definitely be purposeful in seeking to do so. And as you do so in prayerful dependence upon God, on the God who promises that He is at work in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure, He will love that person through you. That's what God does through His children. That's why you are His children. Love always serves. Love always forgives. Love never gives up on the person being loved. And love never worries about self. 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7 says that love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. It does not brag and is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. Is not provoked does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. I pray that everyone here will get very, very, very familiar with that passage, if you're not already. Think about it hard. Meditate on it. Look at what it says. It's a very demanding passage. But it's a wonderful demand. Husbands, build your wife up. Never, ever tear her down. That applies in what you say about her as much as it applies in your actions toward her. Your words about your wife when you speak with others should be words of honor, never words of ridicule. If you can't find anything praiseworthy in your wife to speak of to others, then you have far too high opinion an opinion of yourself. In David's eulogy to Saul, the same Saul who had devoted the latter years of his life without provocation to trying to kill David, in that eulogy, David speaks words only of praise about Saul. 2 Samuel chapter 1. If that's true, then surely you shouldn't have any trouble honoring your wife in conversations with other men. I say this because I hear it all the time. Wives, the same goes for you, of course. Uh, I don't know much about what women talk about with regard to their husbands in conversation with other women, but something in me suspects that it's not necessarily at a higher level than what men are prone to do. The tongue is like a tiny flame that sets an entire forest ablaze. And it is either an instrument of love and edification or it's an instrument of destruction. Men... We are God's chosen instruments to create an environment in our homes that is conducive to faith and godliness on the part of our wives and our children. God charges us and empowers us to do that. And He has not given us a dry well. He's given us love that is overflowing. Paul prays in Ephesians 2 that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith and that we being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that we may be filled up to all the fullness of God. It is not a dry will. A couple more things. Wives, 
You have a special assignment that comes with a special promise from God when it comes to loving your husbands with a directed, purposeful love. And it's counterintuitive. It's not what you would expect. God's clear command to you in 1 Peter chapter 3 is to respect and submit to your husband even if he's being a jerk, even if he's being ungodly, so that perhaps your husband may be won without a word by your godly and respectful behavior. The clear implication of 1 Peter chapter 3 is that God's power is resident in your respectful submission to your husband and that that power is at work to change your husband's heart when he is disobedient to the Word of God. That's a, that's a strong promise. It's no coincidence that that very same purpose is the one that God ascribes to the husband's love for his wife in Ephesians chapter 5. The husband's assignment to love as Christ, love his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Those are two separate assignments and they come from very different angles. But they have the same purpose. Moving the other person toward Christ and toward Christ-likeness. And both constitute love. So let's say your husband is irresponsible about his work or about his obligations to you and his children. God tells you that the way you go about purposefully seeking to nudge him toward God and godliness, in short, the way you love him as you have been loved by Christ, is to be submissive to him, respectful toward him, and godly in your own behavior. You may not like that assignment. You may have a hard time seeing how that could possibly work. But if you think that God's word on this incredibly important subject doesn't tell you what you need to know and to do, then the problem is not with the Word of God. The problem is that you want God's blessings on your terms instead of His. That never works. God's terms upon which we receive His blessing are all about loving as we have been loved by Him and doing it His way. Almost done. Children, if it feels like your mother or father is always butting heads with you, I especially say this to teenagers, but all children, if it feels like your mother or father doesn't understand you, doesn't even seem to care about what's important to you, if it seems like their decisions that strongly impact your life aren't fair and don't even make any sense at times, what must you do to love them as you have been loved by Jesus Christ? Because that is your assignment. The fact that you don't get to pick your parents doesn't exempt you from that assignment. Have you ever thought of saying to your mom or dad, I don't always agree with you, but I know you do the things you do because you love God and you love me. Don't wait until your mother or father is on their deathbed to show them sacrificial love. You'll regret it if you do. Parents, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4 tells fathers not to provoke their children to anger, but to instruct them in the discipline of the Lord. Proverbs filled with instruction to parents about raising their children up in the knowledge and the discipline of the Lord. It's tough work. It's not always appreciated, but it is loving. 
and it is demanded. And you know what? I firmly, firmly believe that the very most important thing that a husband and wife ever do for their kids is to love each other. There are countless ways to work out God's love in a manner that seeks to draw others toward Christ or to encourage another believer in his or her walk with God. These examples I've given you are just examples. I don't want to constrain the Spirit by making anyone think that we just talked about everything that needs to be talked about. It's amazing how creative we can be about things like manipulating others to get what we want or dealing with financial panic. But how much energy and creativity do we put into that which God tells us is more important than everything else that we do? Loving as we have been loved. We who are the beloved of God were saved to love as we have been loved. Christ, our Savior, our our sacrifice, our priest, our righteousness, the shepherd and guardian of our souls saved us to do something. May we never lose sight of His glorious assignment. May we never cease to count it a blessed privilege to be vessels of the one and only God to give His love to other people. Last thing I want to say is that if you're here today and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior, then you can't even get started with this assignment. You can't love others with the love of God if you haven't received it. If you're here today and have not received God's boundless love by simply trusting His Son as your Savior, taking Him at His word, then I pray that you'll do it right now, right where you sit. Loving Father, I am woefully inadequate to teach on this subject or any other from Your Word. But God, You are my adequacy and You are our adequacy. 2 Corinthians 3, 5, and 6 says we are not adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves. Our adequacy is from You because You're the One who has made us sufficient as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. We acknowledge to You, Father, that our grand assignment from You is not about rule-keeping. It is not about burdensome duty. It is about drinking from an overflowing well of life until we are sated and then passing that life on to others. Teach us, Father, to live lives of gratitude and of purpose and of power Teach us, Father, to love as we have been loved with that amazing love that You have known from eternity past. We ask this in Jesus' precious name with hearts of gratitude. Amen.